0: Well, this is Ed Sketcher Live, and this and every Saturday on Moody Radio, our network's partners and affiliates, we have conversations about the moment we're in, the mission we're on, how to be faithful in the midst of confusing cultural times, how to show and share the love of Jesus to a broken and hurting world. And part of what we do is we often talk about how do we engage our neighbors And uh, one of the the realities is we live in a world that's increasingly a uh, multi-ethnic, a multi-faith world where sometimes our neighbors might not be the same neighbors that we might have had 50 years ago. You know, when I was 40, 50 years ago growing up outside New York City, uh, my neighbors were like me, Irish and Italian Catholics. I was Irish Catholic. uh, Well, I mean. We were nominally Catholic. The Catholic Church was the church we didn't go to when we didn't go to church, um, and we maybe knew a Protestant or two. We didn't like them, and that was kind of our experience growing up outside of New York City. Well, if you go to New York City today, uh, you'll actually find that you have people of all different kinds of faiths. Um, you'll have Muslims who are your neighbors, and Hindus who are your neighbors, and atheists who are your neighbors, and Jews who are your neighbors, and and all these different realities have have become evident in our world. Of course, you know, online, we can connect with people in and around the world. So anyway, so my name is Ed Stetzer. I am your host this and every Saturday. I am the dean of the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. And uh, and one of the things we love to do is to bring on a scholar who is actually respected in lots of different places, lots of different disciplines. And uh, and And that's going to be our guest today. I know people at Biola and Talbot actually use. I was, I was actually watching an interview with Sean McDowell did with our guest and just talked about you know his second edition of his book. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but we're going to focus on one particular book today, but let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Doug Grutheis, I want to make sure I, I'm going to give him an opportunity to correct me in just a minute, but he's a professor of We all read his stuff, but he's a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary, author of actually 18 books uh, and books, books including Christian apologetics, the uh, world religions in seven sentences. We're going to focus on those two in particular, but lots of other books uh, as well. So super thankful to have you on the program today, Doug. And just say your name for the rest of us who read your name. And you know when we read your name, we we, we actually see it as uh, as like grudious, and but it's not right. that. We're reading right. we're reading the 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 vowels backwards. So pronounce it for us. <laughs>
1: Yes, it's a Dutch name, so we pronounce it Groteis, which is kind of an amalgamation of English and Dutch. The Dutch would be something like Horehouse, which hurts my throat every time I say it, so we don't quite say it like that.
0: That's a wise move. I was just in Amsterdam yeah. trying to pronounce, like two mm. weeks ago, trying to pronounce uh, Dutch names, and it's not so easy uh, as well. Right. So, of course, I mean, your book on Christian apologetics is, is I mean, I, I've read it, I, I, I don't teach it around apologetics, but we've used it in places where I've been dean and professor. And uh but you've got this 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 book that's kind of just out, which is fascinating in your in your focus. And I and I kinda like how you've made it I don't know how to quite put it. It's almost you've made it simple, um, which is which is always a hard thing because religion is complex. So so the book's mm-hmm. actually coming out, I should say. And uh right. and but people can can pre-order it now. It's World Religions in Seven Sentences, a small introduction to a vast topic, introductions in seven sentences. So tell me, why would you take such a vast topic like World Religions and boil it down to these seven sentences?
1: Right. Well, it's for two reasons. One is, as you mentioned, it's very significant for Christians to be able to have wise, apologetic, and evangelistic conversations with their friends, family, and neighbors. And secondly, I thought I was in a good position to do it because I had been teaching on world religions at Denver Seminary for over 30 years. So I thought, I know the basic beliefs of the world religions, and I'm very engaged and I think equipped in the area of apologetics, so why not combine the two? In one book. So I try to be very fair with uh, the six religions I deal with and the other sentences, God is Dead, which is a statement of atheism by Nietzsche. So I thought, you know, if I've taught a subject for all this time and it's significant for people to learn about it, to have a reason for the hope that is within them when they talk to their unbelieving neighbors, uh, and I had the time to do it. So, and University liked it. So here it is. It'll come out (laughs) early September.
0: Yeah, yeah, I uh, I actually owe a book to university that's four years late. So don't mention. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> I had that one at all. that was
1: six years late, so I've got you beat.
0: Nice, nice. Oh, that's so funny because here is what they told me. They told me there was only one person who is as was later than me. So I just found out there who that go. was. Literally, uh, right now. It's that's the big funny.
1: apologetics book that you mentioned a minute ago. The the idea yeah. was for it to take about two or three years to write, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually it became a textbook. Oh, and it's uh, my it's editor it's at the time, yeah, Andy Lapo, said we just need to give it a nice academic title, Christian Apologetics, and then they put in the subtitle, a comprehensive case for biblical faith. I don't know if it's comprehensive, but it is big. I also call it the brick.
0: <laughs> no, it's, it's, it, for those who don't know, it's 848 pages. So when you say it is big, it is literally, you can stop doors with it. You might be able to, you know, do all kinds of uh, like handyman work just with that book alone. But also it's, mm-hmm. and it is the second edition. What uh, right. the difference between the first and the second was you just expanded, kept going? I did. I didn't change a whole lot, but I
1: did add eight chapters. I think the chapters I revised the most were, um, the chapter on religious pluralism. And uh, I I also added a lot on the atonement because Mm. I found that people were attacking the view that Jesus took the punishment for our sins. That's called propitiation. I found out uh, not just unbelievers, but some believers were challenging that view. So I decided I'd add a few pages on that and then it became a chapter and then it actually became two chapters. <laughs> this is, I also uh, added a chapter yeah. uh, in defense of the church because nice. a lot of the Protestant apologetics books don't really talk much about the church right but Jesus said uh, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it so if you're going to follow Jesus you really need to be a part of his
0: church so I added a chapter called in defense of the church love it love it and again for those of you yeah. Are not necessarily in the space now. You know, I'm just starting at Biola and Talbot, and we have a you know very robust apologetics program. But people to speak of your your book for the for those who are listening, they just speak of your books as, as such a key resource. Again, it's Christian apologetics, mm-hmm. a comprehensive case for the biblical faith. But what I what I primarily want to focus in on is, and we'll keep we'll, we'll come back to that because they obviously are related. Is um, is the forthcoming World Religion in Seven Sentences? Because I liked the themes here. Uh, again, I'm a missiologist. You're a philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but as a missiologist, I kind of work in that space. And I was very intrigued by the sentences that you chose. Now, let me, I, we're jumping into this conversation. We should invite people to join us as well. My uh, The number to call into our program here is 877 548 3675. You can ask questions, you can share comments. Maybe you've maybe read the apologetics book. You haven't yet read the seven sentences book, but maybe you've got questions about war religions. We're going to walk through, and it's kind of the, we should say it's the, some of the major world religions, because we recognize that there are many more than seven that are there. Um, Okay, so back to the topic at hand. So I'm actually recording today, broadcasting today from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center, because I'm I'm like a bad penny they can't get rid of. So I'm I'm down in the basement studio here, with their permission, I should add. Um, down and up in the in my bunker, office, huh? Down in the bunker. Down in the bunker. There's, they, they, yeah. they haven't kicked me out. Up in my office, which I'm not moved for another week or so, I have on my wall the God is dead Time, I think it's Time magazine cover. Mm-hmm. And then I have yeah. the Jesus revolution, the old one as well, kind of contrasting the two. So atheism, God is dead. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that, because for some people, there's almost the perception that, and my view may be a little different than yours, we'll see, there's almost a the perception that everyone is suddenly atheist. I think statistically, there was a big surge of atheist publishing, but atheism mm-hmm. isn't 20% of the population. That's but So tell us about where atheism fits into this and why you chose that sentence.
1: Right. Let me go back to what you said about being a, a missiologist. I think yeah. I view myself as a, a missiologist philosopher, because it's very significant to me in all my writing and all my speaking to defend and commend the Christian faith as true, rational, and pertinent to life. Makes sense. So I have a real sense of mission in what I do. I want to do it with academic integrity. I want to write well, but I always have in mind this discipline of apologetics. So I thought if I'm going to write a book on religions, I should give equal time Uh, to someone who denied all the religions as true. And that was uh, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who lived from 1844 to 1900. And in a famous parable that he wrote called The Madman, the madman comes into a church and says that God is dead. uh, God remains dead. We have killed him. We are God's murderers. And then he goes on to speak about all the implications for philosophy, ethics, culture, and all the rest of it. So what he meant was that there's no longer any reason to be a Christian. Uh, He's saying this about 1885 in Europe. He traveled around Europe at that time. So let's get honest with it. Now, when you really get to Nietzsche's arguments against the existence of God, they're very weak, and I address those in the book. But he is a a signal figure, a very significant figure, in terms of saying, if we're going to deny the existence of God and the truth of all religions, then let's be consistent with that. It means the universe has no objective meaning, no purpose, uh, things like prayer and so on. Are pointless, and we simply have to try to uh, actualize our own potential in a meaningless, purposeless world. So a lot of my writing, I think about 250 pages of Christian apologetics, is about positive arguments for God's existence. But in my chapter on Nietzsche, I wanted to explain what his sentence meant and then uh, deal with some of the objections uh, he raised against the existence of God. I think that you've probably seen this, Ed. The numbers for atheism are are growing, at least yeah. according to uh, the Gallup poll from last year. Yep. I think only 80% of the people interviewed said that they definitely believed in God's existence. And for as long as they've been doing these kind of polls, it was always in the 90s, uh, low 90s, middle 90s. And it's dropped pretty precipitously. And of course, we have the rise of unaffiliated people who don't identify as belonging to any religion. They may be agnostic, New Age, atheistic, we're not sure. So for some people, no world religion is considered a legitimate option. So I use Nietzsche as a way of addressing that issue. Now, Nietzsche was arguing against Judaism and Christianity primarily, but he is also saying that there is no transcendent or supernatural reality. So, if he's right, that would also eliminate every religion because a defining condition for any religion is that there's some sacred or supernatural reality, whether that's the Trinity or Allah, or it could be for the Buddhist, Nirvana, uh, could be uh, the attainment of. Brahman consciousness in Hinduism for Taoism. It's the Tao. So basically the ultimate reality in religions can be divided into those that believe in a personal moral creator and designer, the monotheistic religions, and those that believe that there's some sacred reality or realm, but it's not really personal. That is not self-conscious, not an agent, not an I am, but more an it is. But If Nietzsche's arguments go through, all religions are essentially wrongheaded, although he did have some respect uh, for Buddhism, interestingly, because it took suffering so seriously.
0: Fascinating. Okay, we're going to continue our conversation and walk through some of the other sentences, the other religions as well. Uh, we're, we're going to take your calls as well. 877 548 3675. Again, that's eight seven 548 3675. We're talking through world religions in seven sentences, a small introduction to a vast topic, and continuing to talk about apologetics as well. Taking your calls again. It is 877 548 3675. Hey, we're back at are Live. Our guest today, Doug Grotheis. I'm going to keep trying to say that properly again and again, get my good Dutch pronunciation, or I guess it's Dutch and English, so that's Denglish. I'm not quite sure. But he's a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary, author of 18 books, uh, and we're focusing today on World Religions in Seven Sentences, forthcoming, though I must confess I'm very appreciative of other books he's written, too, including Christian Apologetics as well. We just started by jumping in, talking about the seven sentences and the sort of like seven sentences that kind of describe uh, in a sentence and then unpack in the book some of what it means to be a follower of certain faiths. We're taking your calls as well. I see some folks lining up on the phones. We like that. Again, 877-548-3675. I think, Doug, my, my funded questions will be, why this sentence here or there. Now, God is dead mm-hmm. sort of makes sense to me. And of course, we could spend the entire show talking about that. But I want to I walk forward. And of course, I'm, I'm particularly interested in Christianity. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, mm-hmm. I, to me, the, the Islam sentence makes perfect and complete sense. But talk to me a little bit about the Judaism sentence that's there.
1: Right. Now, when you try to encapsulate a religion in just one sentence, it's going to be difficult and people will disagree with you. You don't want to be tangentious. Tenge- that is, I don't want to select something uh, with an unfair agenda in mind. So a couple days ago, I had lunch with a friend of mine who knew a rabbi and the rabbi and his daughter came and I, we had lunch together. I told him about my book and I said, what sentence do you think I chose for Judaism? And he and his daughter said, well, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And I said, I didn't choose that. Hmm. And I certainly thought about it. Sure. And I said, I chose Exodus 3.14, where God reveals himself to Moses as I am who I am. And it's really interesting. They both went, oh.
0: <laughs> yeah, interesting. So but the I good thing is they, did, re- they, didn't say, they didn't say no. So that's good. <laughs> no, they didn't say no. They didn't yeah. say, how
1: dare you? Or yeah. you have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, But I thought it would be appropriate to consider the Jewish uh, view of God that we find in the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. And uh, we talked about that quite a bit, and we talked about the Shema. But I do have a concern, or you might say a conceptual connection to make, because when I get to Christianity, I chose uh, Jesus' statement in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am where he is identifying himself actually as the God of Israel. So I thought it was appropriate because can you really understand the Hebrew Bible? Can you understand ancient or any version of Judaism without at least the concept of God? Right. So I uh, expanded on that quite a bit, told the story of how God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and the significance of the fact that God was communicating he was talking in sentences to a human being and in religion not all not all religions believe that there's something that we could call cognitive revelation you certainly don't have that in uh, buddhism or Taoism. but the monotheistic religions believe that god is a personal self-reflective agent who has a mind who has thoughts and who can make those thoughts known God's creatures, and you find in the exchange between Moses and God, which of course God initiated through this supernatural sign of a burning bush that's not consumed, uh, that that God speaks and Moses hears and Moses interacts with God. So that is extremely significant in religion. Do we have an understandable word from the supreme reality? and Judaism says yes. Of course, Christianity says yes as well. And Islam says yes. But what we find in the Quran are some statements that agree with Judaism and Christianity, but some very pivotal statements that do not. So then we have to start deciding uh, what is the true word from God and what is not. Hmm.
0: And of course, you know, we we think of The the Gift of the Jews, another book kind of talks about some of the idea right, of the book. monotheism. It right. really is. But How the Irish Saved Civilization, his other book, is a better book, but that's another story. For
1: I like that one, too. Okay, good. I'm, thanks. We were <laughs> I'm not Irish, right though, here. but I'll <laughs> grant you that. I'm Dutch um, and Italian.
0: <laughs> there you go. Are you Dutch and Italian? Okay, that's a fascinating yeah. mix. The So the idea, then, that you're focusing there on, I mean, both self-revelation and monotheism. For those of you who don't know, when, when Doug was mentioning the Shema, that's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter six, which says, "Hear, O Israel: The Lord our God is one. You love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, uh, with your heart and soul, all your might." These words what I command today, being your heart, goes on from there, mm-hmm. which is seen as often a as central passage. I did wonder a little bit that you know, making you're making the connection to the Jesus reference, but still, it does make sense to me that this is a mm-hmm. just pivotal this God revelation to to man. Changes everything, and and really is right. central to what will become Christianity, and even the idea of monotheism that would be present in in Islam. So, um, so you kind of go through, you explain that. Let's talk some about about Hinduism. It's a little more obscure to a lot of people what Hindus mm-hmm. actually believe. Um, so, explain the the sentence, what it means.
1: Right now, there it's even more difficult because there's a vast corpus of sacred scripture in Hinduism. And there are various schools of Hinduism that disagree on fundamental ideas, although all Hindus share certain beliefs in karma, reincarnation. They all believe that the four Vedas are divine scripture and so on. But I took a sentence that says, you are that, or in some of the older translations, and this is from one of the scriptures called the Upanishads, it's thou art that, that has more of a King James ring to it.
0: Hmm.
1: Now that is in a sacred scripture of Hinduism. So I think it's legitimate to reflect on that. But I looked at that scripture in light of its non-dualist understanding. let me explain that. Non-dualism claims that there is no distinction between the creator and the creation or the maker and the maid. Everything is one. Everything is without division. So that oneness is considered divine. So this is a dialogue between a father and a son in this uh, Upanishad. And the father keeps saying to the son, you are that you are one with everything. There's no, final distinction between you and nature or you and god or you and anything else you are that so this particular school of hinduism the non-dualistic school it's, it's actually called advaita vedanta is not the only school the only interpretation of hinduism and i make that very straightforward in the book however that idea that we are innately one with the supreme one with this great impersonal god has had a tremendous impact on the west and on american culture especially through uh, what we used to call the new age movement which i wrote about in the previous millennium uh, in my first two (laughs) books unmasking the new age confronting the new age Mm -hmm. so i make all the qualifications i don't want people to think i'm just cherry picking i'm saying that yes all hindus believe in karma reincarnation the inspiration of The Vedas, they believe yoga is a way to attain enlightenment and a few other ideas. But when it comes to the metaphysics, the ultimate worldview, you have disagreement. In fact, uh, some Hindus believe in a, a personal God, although I don't think that's really deeply rooted in their scriptures. But it is a sacred scripture of Hinduism, and I take a look at it, especially through the lens of a non-dualistic philosopher by the name of Shankara, uh, who lived in the late 8th century, early ninth century in India.
0: Fascinating. I, I think one of the challenges of writing a book like this is the complexity of religions. I wrote an article, a cover story years ago for Christianity Today on proselytization in a multi-faith world, but basically advocating mm-hmm. for for Christians to be able to evangelize, but for religious freedom for everybody. And even writing about, you know, Buddhism, which is generally a non-theistic religion. But then there's like these sects of Buddhism that are theistic, but they're small. And right. no matter what you write, it's wrong somewhere. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, or there's an exception to it. And you could spend, you know, but, but again, you're laying out sort of a, a fair, I mean, in our description here is a, is a fair overview of other faiths, so let's let's go on to Buddhism. I want to make sure we have time before the bottom of the hour. Yeah, let's just briefly touch on Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Oh, we got about one minute left. Courtney just said in my ear, so just Buddhism start one minute. About that's it. my next be, no, no pressure. Exactly. <laughs> well, you did seven sentences. Now you do one minute. Give us a minute introduction to Buddhism.
1: Yes. Well, Buddhism is based on the teaching of Siddhartha Gautama, who became enlightened about age thirty and realized that there were four noble truths about existence and the first one is life is suffering and that is the sentence that i chose to reflect on the second is suffering is caused by uh craving and enlightenment is found by eliminating craving and the fourth noble truth is that craving can be eliminated through the disciplines of buddhism
0: that's a uh cheery beginning, but we got much more to say as yep. well. We're going to take your calls. We're going to take your calls. Eight seven seven five four eight three six seven five. My guess is that many of you would have a Buddhist neighbor or Muslim neighbor or more. And you might want to talk about how to, how do I have those conversations? How do I lean into some of the, kind of the, 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 the understanding of somebody else's faith. You don't have to be a world religion scholar. We're going to talk about that and more in just a moment but we want to prepare you for engaging the world that is increasingly our neighbor as well our number is 877-548-3675 when we come back we're also going to talk some about uh about islam we talk about Taoism and more and take your calls again our phone number 877-548-3675 Hey, we're back at Stetzer Live, and we're going to be taking your calls in just a minute. We're here with Doug Grotheis, and we're talking about his uh, his forthcoming book that is World Religion in Seven Sentences. And and this is you know having a conversation on a radio in an hour program. You're kind of going through seven major religions. We are. We we know that we're barely touching the surface, and. The book is going to help you go a little bit deeper. And then, I mean, there are people who obviously were religions is their focus of their entire life. And there's thousands of thousands of pages. And, but, but the reality is for most of us, we're wanting to know enough to engage in what hopefully is some respectful conversations that ultimately give us the opportunity to point people to Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we want to share the good news of the gospel. Um, so we've gone through atheism, God is dead, Judaism, uh, I am who I am. Uh, Hinduism, you are that, uh, Buddhism, life is suffering, which I know if you're if you're listening to that, you might say, was that kind of a, you know, a reductionist mischaracterization of Buddhism? I mean, no, this would actually be very much a description of part of what the Buddhist uh, faith would actually hold. And we're going to continue on a minute, but we just had, you know, just a minute to talk more about Buddhism. So unpack it for us a little bit more, Doug.
1: Yeah. Well, Buddhism is based on the idea of a Dharma or an eternal teaching And the Buddha, in his first sermon, uh, spoke of these four essential truths. And the first is life is suffering. And it means that we are always frustrated in one way or another in this life. We may have what we don't want, or we want what we don't have. And of course, decay and death is the destiny of every living thing. So... Uh, redemptive religions, um, Christianity and Judaism, and I guess you could say Islam in a sense, believe that God will make the universe right in the end, right? Because there's a doctrine of creation. God created the world, there's something wrong with the world, but finally God will restore and renew and judge the universe. Now, Buddhism is not a religion like that because it does not believe the ultimate or final reality is a personal Redeeming being. Uh, With Buddhism, you're ultimately on your own to find enlightenment. And you find enlightenment through personal discipline, through meditation, uh, right thought, right action, right vocation, and so on. So it's not that you will be forgiven of your sins or you will be given a new birth. uh, Those are teachings of Christianity. And that one day you will live in a resurrected world with all the saints. It's that you need to free yourself from attachment to this world of suffering, and then eventually, may take multiple uh, reincarnations to work off your bad karma, but eventually, if you completely free yourself from craving, you could attain what is called nirvana. Now, nirvana is not a person, place, or thing. It's considered a state of being, in which desire and self have been eliminated. It's not quite nothing. But it's not personal. It's not relational. It's not anything like uh, the biblical view of redemption. So a lot of people try to compare Jesus and Buddha and say they were they were two sages teaching basically the same truth in different words. That is absolutely false. And I hope yeah, my no, book makes that clear. Yeah. No so question, one, no, you know, one thing that. we need Good, to do when we look at the comparative religions, before we even make any judgments as to which, if any of them are true, we have to know what they teach, mm-hmm. and then we have to ask, well, how do the essential teachings of Buddhism relate to Christianity, or how does Hinduism relate to Christianity, and not try to stuff them into one mold because they do not fit in one big mold.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that a that hundred years ago, maybe a little more than a hundred years ago, actually at like the World Parliament of Religions in Chicago, where I am, I'm a missiologist, so I keep going to missions uh, history. Right. Your, your president, Mark Young's a friend of mine, president at Denver Seminary. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, t- we talked missiology from time to time. But the idea a hundred years ago was that there were these lesser lights and they were going to come into the greater light. And we all kind of believe or teach the same thing. If we just talk enough, we'll find out the commonalities mm-hmm. and... And really what we find out is they're, I mean, they're, they're fundamentally different ideas. There are some that are monotheistic. There are some that are Abrahamic. There's, you know, there's – but the reality is, I mean, we're not looking at at different ways of the elephant where you touch the elephant and there's right. a trunk or it's a, you know, it's a, it's a whatever, a tail. And I think that's imp- an important distinction. And then the question becomes what if any – or in the case of atheism, if none – are true. Mm-hmm. But we're gonna get to that near the end of the show because I really want to make sure we get to these others. By the way, many of you will notice how many words in Buddhism have become commonplace use in English. We talked about, you know, karma, mm-hmm. things of that sort. That's fascinating. Yeah. Taoism, less known by people. So tell us the sentence and explain mm-hmm. a little bit about Taoism.
1: Right. Taoism is considered one of the major world religions. However, it does not have that many followers who would identify as Taoists around the world. But the idea that I'm working with comes from a text called the Tao Te Ching. And the translation I've used is that the Tao that can be be spoken is not the eternal Tao. Now, the reason I choose that is that it is a very clear sentence for a teaching which is called ineffability. That is the ultimate reality is beyond words and thoughts. It really cannot be put in propositional statements. This is the key to a lot of mysticism. You also find this idea in much of Buddhism and Hinduism. But I think it's most clearly stated in this statement, the Tao, or meaning the way, the ultimate way of existence cannot uh, be stated. So this is the polar opposite of what the Bible teaches. Uh, God reveals himself. Think of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, he created all things. And then it goes on to say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then John says, he has made the Father known. Jesus is the living Word, and we have the written Word of God. In the Bible. So there's a very clear and titanic difference between saying the ultimate reality is beyond words and thoughts, and we have to kind of guess at it or maybe experience it in a mystical way, and the idea that God is an infinite personal being who communicates, who wants to communicate, and has made known the way of life to us through Jesus Christ and in the Bible. So I critique this idea of ineffability. I had a great teacher on this, uh, Dr. Keith Yandel, who was a philosophy professor for many years at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He passed away a few years ago. But uh, he was a very cogent critic of this idea. And the essential problem, I go into more detail in the book, is, well, if you cannot write about it or speak about it, then just put the pen down. You know just shut up it there's nothing else to do just sit in the corner and meditate you know the ultimate reality cannot be spoken then why are you speaking so there's a what's called a self-reference problem there Uh, the people that claim ineffability whether they're Hindus Buddhists, Taoists, New Agers always end up talking about what supposedly is utterly beyond words now that's an essential philosophical logical problem as Christians we can say God far exceeds our own finite knowledge and our reason and our knowing is affected adversely by sin. However, God being the ultimate personal being and good and loving and just wants to communicate his truth to us and he has made it known to us Mm. in Holy Scripture. So we have a framework for understanding life. We have a worldview based on Scripture. We don't have to just hedge our bets constantly and say, well, you know, the ultimate reality cannot be known, cannot be spoken. That doesn't give you an anchor for life. That doesn't give you an orientation uh, for life, for the joys, the pains, the hopes, the fears. But if God has revealed himself in knowable statements, and if God has actually come to earth in the person of Jesus and lived out the truth, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to father but by me. Uh, then we have a very different orientation to everything. And that's what I'm commending in the book, of course. No, right. I want to be fair to the other religions, but ultimately I think the Christian message makes the most sense, is the most logical, and the most attractive.
0: Right, and I think, I think taking that path that you're doing where you're trying to give a fair representation, it gives Christians the opportunity to engage neighbors, but at the same time pointing people to Christ. is it, You're pretty forthright in that as well. We're going to continue our conversation uh, in just a few minutes. We're talking about World Religions in Seven Sentences, a forthcoming book from InterVarsity Press, taking your calls. We've got calls coming in the final segment. We're going to go to Penelope first and then to others as well. 877 3675 Again, 877 3675 Okay, we're back at her Live, and I'm torn because we've got to get these last two words in, and then we've got to take calls. So we we got to move. We've got to move. So let's go, Doug, back to you. Um, you know, we, we mentioned Taoism, by the way. Those of you who are interested, it's sometimes spelled with a T, sometimes spelled with a D. You can find it online, it's significantly practiced in China and Taiwan. But we're going to move forward to uh, – let's do Christianity last, though. I know when you're – Islam. Let's go to Islam. And, and the obvious sentence there, well, you go ahead and tell us.
1: Right. The sentence, the the creed really of Islam is that there's one God and Muhammad is his prophet. So it's very short, simple, and Muslims will say, we can nail it in this one sentence. That's the confession you make when you become a Muslim. If you say that in good faith, you are then a Muslim. So the difference here between, let's say, uh, Christianity related to Taoism is you have monotheism versus a a mystical, non-monotheistic religion. But if you're comparing Christianity with Islam, you have two monotheistic religions. Right. They both believe that there is a creator God who sent prophets to the world and who holds the world accountable. So you have to try to understand what is the relationship between Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, because there's a claim of succession. Christianity claims to have succeeded, but also incorporated judaism and then islam says it has come along actually as the final revelation and if you want to understand the bible you want to understand christianity and judaism you have to understand it through the lens of a book called the quran which was supposedly revealed to muhammad over a period of years uh, by the god allah so what i do in the chapter is say We have commonalities, of course, with the idea of one creator, God. Uh, Christianity and Muslims believe that God sent prophets to the world, that God inspired scripture. But the key dividing point has to do with who is a prophet and is the Bible as we now have it reliable? And if the Bible as we now have it is reliable, as I claim, then Muhammad cannot be a true prophet because what we find in the Quran contradicts the Bible in very significant ways particularly about the identity and mission of jesus christ because islam denies the deity of christ denies the saving atoning death of christ and of course uh, denies the trinity so i don't just say in the book islam denies key christian truths therefore it's false i make that point you can't have them both be true but i give arguments why i don't think the islamic challenge to historic Christianity holds up. Essentially, it comes down to evidence. So why should I believe that a man who went into a cave uh, 600 years after the writing of the Bible, or more, the last book of the New Testament, let's say, has the authority to contradict what we have in sacred, sacred scripture. So that's a summary of the argument. But, uh, Christians and Muslims can agree on many things. We might make common cause on certain issues, uh, morally, but ultimately, our concepts of God and salvation are very different.
0: Yeah, very, very much so. And we're, worth noting, the the distinctions uh, basically, you know, take us entirely different directions about understanding grace, about the character of God, and, yes, absolutely. and more. Um, my favorite sentence was, and I really like that you chose for Christianity, and let's explain that, and then I think we'll be able to, Penelope, you'll hold on, we're going to get to your, you may be the only call we get to, but go ahead and tell us about Christianity, Doug.
1: Right. What I chose for that, and I could have chosen so many things, is John eight fifty eight, where Jesus is in a, a dispute with the re- religious authorities, and he says, uh, to cinch the argument, before Abraham was, I am, and uh, they accuse him of blasphemy and try to stone him. So what does that sentence mean? Before Abraham was, I am. For one thing, Jesus is claiming to have existed as a personal being before Abraham. And they said, wait a minute, you're not even 50 years old. How could you do that? And he makes it even more sharp by saying before Abraham was, I am. And that's a reference back to Exodus 3.14, where God revealed himself to Moses as the great I am, the self-existent, personal, relational being. So it's a claim by this man, Jesus Christ, to be divine. Now, of course, I could have taken so many other passages, uh, John three sixteen, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes on him might not perish, but have everlasting life. But the book really uh, spends a lot of time on what philosophers call metaphysics. So... What is the ultimate reality that grounds and conditions everything else? And for Judaism and Christianity, it is a self-reflective, mindful agent—a being, right—who acts in the world and who reveals himself to the world. So I guess someone might say, "Well, that is a little tendent- tendentious." That's a hard word to say uh, because you're you're kind of cherry-picking. You go back to the I am of Exodus, and then you go to the I am of Jesus. But it's right there in the text. And I make a case that when Jesus said I am, before Abraham was I am, uh, that that statement was true. And he was not uh, blowing metaphysical smoke there. That he was a (laughs) unique human being, uh, given his claims, his credentials, Uh, his resurrection. He was not a madman. He was not a deceiver. So, uh, you know, there's exactly one religion based on uh, the death, resurrection, and ascension of its divine
0: founder, and that's Mm -hmm. Christianity. Love it. Love it. And I actually really appreciate the fact that you chose that as well. Let's go to Penelope. Penelope, I promised. And so we're going to go to Penelope now in Tampa, Florida on 91.1. Go ahead, Penelope.
1: Thank you for this wonderful book. I will definitely buy it. I wish I was posing the question after I consumed it. But in any event, I, I went to Harvard, uh, a master's. Um, my classmates, very successful um, entrepreneurs, um, diplomats, and what I had found was a great deal of complacency. Um, engaging in meditation and with some paranormal... Penelope Penelope I
0: got to tell you we're short on time so I want you to get right to that question okay, okay? I'm how sorry how do
1: I how do I engage I don't want to answer a question that they're not asking but what would be the key question to engage to ask mm-hmm. them to engage them to open up Love it Doug? Right there is this problem of complacency or apathy really And so people are just looking for peace of mind and they're not worried about the ultimate issues of life. And I'd say, well, have you taken seriously the claims of Jesus? Because if what he said is true, then that's the most important issue you could ever address because we're talking about our standing before God, before the creator, before the lawgiver. And have you given Jesus proper attention Uh, because his claims are profound and his teachings have certainly influenced uh, the entire world more than anyone else's teachings. So I would get to the, the issue of Jesus, uh, the identity of Jesus, or have you really considered Jesus Christ as revealed, as discussed in the New Testament? And you can go from there. And uh, Jesus didn't show up and say, well, I've got some meaningful teachings that you might want to mull over. You know, he said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, if you don't believe on me, you will die in your sins. He said he would be the judge of the entire human race at the end of history. You know, I'd like to know if someone who makes those kind of claims and has that kind of impact on the world is right or not. You know, John Stott used to say, you have to do something with Jesus. Mm -hmm. The way he speaks and the way he acts is always eliciting a response Stott wrote this book called Christ the Controversialist. So you either have to accept what he said and follow him or deny it. But being noncommittal and, uh, you know, back to the old Doobie Brothers song, Jesus is just all right with me. That's not a rational response. You got to be ultimately on one side or the other.
0: I must confess, I didn't see a Doobie Brothers song coming at the end of the show, but (laughs) I—I'm an old (laughs) hippie. Come on. (laughs) Nevertheless, I I like it. You know, I think it was Lewis who said it cannot be moderately important if this is true. So, hey, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us, Um, Doug. You have been a an encourager to many through your writings, and I'm glad—I don't think we ever met, so I'm glad to finally. I have you on right. the program as well. The the book, and I want to encourage you to pick up, you can pre-order it right now, and Penelope is already. So make sure you pick up the book uh, by pre-order, and it's called World Religions in Seven Sentences. I'd also kind of commend you to pick up his recent, I think it, the second edition came out I think in 22, it's called Christian Apologetics mm-hmm. as well. So let me thank my guest, um, Doug Groteis, okay. say, say it for me Doug, one more time, Doug Groteis. Groteis, Groteis, I keep wanting to say Groteis. grew, but Groteis. For joining me today, thanks Behind the scene team, Karen Hendren, Courtney Young, Lynn on the phone. Next week, JT English, Jen Wilkin, joining me to talk about theology and how you can grow just by studying God's words and actually become more of a theologian. Let me remind you that Ed Stetzer Live is a production of Moody Radio, and Moody Radio is a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your call, Penelope. Thanks all. Bye-bye.